Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Today we answer the question, does cobalt have a future in lithium ion batteries? Plus, what does it mean for investors? So do enjoy this video. And if you do, you can find more information like this exclusively on cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, uh, where you can find a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other. Hear commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of companies and commodities. There are training courses on there to help you with your diligence process. There are summaries of other interviews that we've done uh, just to save you some time. So go to cruxinvestor.com dot com forward slash club. Joe, how are you, sir? I'm well, thank you, Matthew. It's good to be back. Well, it's good to have you back. We've had uh, such a great response to the last piece you did, helping us understand the cobalt market. Um, but I've got a big problem for you. It's the question mm -hmm. we get sent in the most. It's like, yep. why on earth would anyone invest in cobalt? Tesla's fading it out of their batteries. Doesn't look like there's a future for it. Yeah, I'm hearing that. One, one manufacturer has said they want to get rid of cobalt and it's all over Red Rover. Um, interestingly enough, that same manufacturer has signed a long-term deal with Glencore, the world's largest provider of cobalt, to underpin their own EV uh, forecasts. But look, wh where does my strong belief that cobalt has not only a, a, a vibrant future, but a, a future that's entrenched in large-scale batteries, be that ESS or EVs, it comes from simply the, the science. The, the leading contender in the non-cobalt field, this LFP battery, lithium ion phosphate, is simply too weak on an energy density basis to make a mass market vehicle from. So you're talking about a battery that can only hold, you know, 60 or 70% of a cobalt-based battery in terms of its energy. It's maybe 5% cheaper. And increasingly now, particularly with the Chinese winter where we've seen this is the first large year of LFP rollouts, particularly the Tesla rollout, it actually doesn't perform that well in cold weather. So you, we've had a lot of anecdotes come back that those who have bought the cheaper Series 3, the LFP series, are actually looking to refund or upgrade to the more expensive NCA Series 3, which will give them a genuine 600-kilometre range as opposed to a nameplate 350-kilometre range, which in winter isn't even probably half of that. Right. So, so, so can I just ask, so I need to interrupt. So you're saying that even Tesla, because we had a big fanfare, okay, we're phasing out cobalt from our batteries for whatever ethical reasons. Um, they've gone and signed a, an agreement with Glencore to supply them with cobalt going forward for presumably different use cases. That's happened. Yes. Wow. Okay. I, there are about six global uh, battery participants focused on EVs that have signed long-term deals for cobalt. And I think from your investor point of view, it's important to appreciate these are unprecedented deals. Uh, uh, 18 months ago, nobody was signing deals over one year length. Now it's typically five or six year duration. Wow. But just by way of example, Dan, your neck of the woods, Umicore, second biggest precursor maker in Europe, very smart uh, people, very good science, signed a multi-year deal. Uh, Samsung SDI, five-year deal. SKI, the South Korean innovation business, six-year deal. GEM, the Chinese, five-year deal. Tesla, and more recently, BMW, undisclosed terms, long-term deal. So, so that's coming out of the woodwork because EV makers need surety of supply before they commit to what are very long production runs. And that's something we can talk about. And that, that's 
on cobalt. We're talking cobalt only, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So okay. these these are typically cobalt sulfates to feed their NCA or NCM batteries. Got it. Okay. So I think people need to appreciate that cobalt is very much part of battery makers' designs and technology solution for different use cases going forward. Yeah. Look, we've we've had a number of calls um, from participants in the battery industry so precursor or cathode guys in the last two months it's all been the last two months it's just gone gangbusters and two of these calls are top five makers and they've effectively shared with us their idea of what they should be procuring and in generally speaking and i'll just average out a bit um, these guys are procuring five to six percent cobalt cathodes by content for the next five years and then four to five percent till the end of the decade so that's the next 10 years why is it such a long dated procurement process is because they're committing to EVs, which themselves look to have seven, eight, nine year production runs. You simply can't change, even within cathode chemistries, uh, a six, two to an eight, one, you pretty much have to start again. These are major capital investments and they need the surety of that supply before they go ahead. So talk to me about this because Cobra also had uses long before EV uh, the EV thematic came along. Okay, we, we, we're talking about you know in in, in steels and alloys and uh, industrial chemicals and so forth. So it was a well-established market. Okay, then we've got some new use cases. Obviously, lithium-ion batteries, super alloys, you know, consumer electronics, etc., coming coming along and also creating a, a demand there. So. But it's a really small market. You, you, the, one of the first conversations we had, you said you could stick the world's supply on, on one container ship, and you know that's it, folks. That's what you're looking at. So this new demand, surely that's going to move the dial. Oh, it's 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 very significant because exactly as you say, you're stressing a very small supply base. You're stressing a very very small supply base. Um, that is fed through a country that is very fragile, which is the DRC, That's whose logistics uh, chain into the neighbouring countries and ultimately into the markets of Asia and Europe are even further stretched with COVID and other shutdowns. So some of the key ports, uh, for example, Durban in South Africa, they're running at 50%, 60% capacity right now because of COVID restrictions. So it's a very, very fragile supply chain that's feeding the global market. But yeah, you're right. Let's take a step back. If we look at the entirety of the of the cobalt market today, about sixty percent of it is is batteries. Now, that portion in secondary batteries in rechargeables was virtually zero back in 1995 or so, and then Panasonic, you know, uh, created a commercial lithium ion cell. So that's come out of nothing. Of that sixty percent, about twenty five percent of that today's EVs. Again, that was nothing ten years ago. And what's really exciting, I think, from an investment point of view is not only are they very lumpy, long-dated investments, I have seen um, uh, estimations that the EV manufacturers are putting US $500 billion towards effectively rejigging their fleets going forward. Um, and then the EV battery guys are about half that to try and supply that. But because they're so it's such lumpy investments and such long-dated investments, I go come back to that seven, eight, nine-year production life, they're sourcing product now. And whilst I'd love to supply them product tomorrow, it's still going to take me one year, year and a half, two years to pre-qualify Broken Hill Cobalt, the, the Cobb signature product, into that supply. So you're talking about 10 years away from today pre-qualifying to the minimum 
term for that one facility before they'll potentially re-equip that for another battery type or an EV type. So you've, I mean, you've got a process to go through for sure. I understand that one, but I'm still kind of reeling from the perception in the market being that cobalt is not something that's investable today because there's no future demand. And you've said categorically, that's not the case. And your your data is coming because I'm, I'm just want to got to be careful here. You're you're in the cobalt business. You've got rose tinted glasses. You're gonna, of course, you're gonna say it's gonna be fine. So. G- Break it down for me. So where are you seeing this demand coming from? Have you had conversations? Who with? What do they want to know? Yeah. So look, um, I come back to the conversation with leading battery makers we've had in the last two months where we're looking, for us in the near term, it's about sending out the sample and pre-qualifying. So that's the hook. And that's how we've created these relationships. But as an average the, that industry is procuring, I mentioned, 5 to 6% cobalt content in the next five years and a slight drop down. This is amongst the same technical uh, um, businesses that are looking to ultimately thrift it down to, to zero. Everybody, it's in, it's in the battery maker's interest, ultimately, to thrift the cobalt down to the minimum level required for stability because cobalt doesn't add anything to the electromotive properties of the battery. Nickel does that. So you want to put more nickel into the product. But that is the reality of what they're prepared to substitute. They're not prepared to save, and in the case of an LFP battery to an 811, 5%, 6% of costs, cop a 30% penalty in energy density, and they're not prepared to do that in sake of quality and brand. And what we're seeing, with, particularly with these rollouts of, of LFP, is that they're not, they're not even making that stated energy density. So it's a market that you just... If you're a, if you're an EV manufacturer, you don't want to create quality issues now because the recall will kill you effectively. So they're going to bank on the pro, the chemistry they know. They're going to bank on uh, effectively the the supply they know, and we're going to be part of that future supply industry for as cobalt blue. So thrifting by thrifting, do you mean just cutting out, or do you mean replacing with something else? Can they lowering right? So they they can substitute it out. No, look, there is a limit. So every every time they lower, they drop the cobalt limit. Um, you then have question marks over the uh, the stability of the cathode. So now the the chemistry is actually getting quite funky. They have um, differentiated grades across the co- uh, the cathode. So if you sliced a cathode open, you'd actually see different uh, metals at different parts of the core. And the cobalt is really focused on the part that gives it stability. The nickel is then on the parts that sees the lithium ion and creates the electromotive force. So they're getting so um, technically advanced, they can create a differentiated core in order to thrift the, the cobalt, increase the, the nickel. But that's where this 5%, 6% number comes from. And that's why it's very hard to make a quantum change from that point. You may be talking about thrifting it by 100 basis points, 150 basis points in the next decade. But they're certainly not going to take the risk to take a step change and effectively hope that the stability is there without co- without cobalt. It's interesting, actually, because the automotives are going through this process. I'm, I'm sorry to focus on this, but it's the, obviously it's the new driver uh, for, for pricing, I, I suspect, going forward. Um, and it's the exciting thematic of the moment. But the battery designs, you know, mm-hmm. the, the combinations are one thing. The size of these batteries, the different use cases, you know, whether not, it's not just automotive. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, well, sorry, it's vehicles in its widest sense. We, we've seen people come on here and talk about um, boats, planes, 
cars, trucks, lorries, buses, you know, lots of different use cases, you know, large cars, small cars, fast cars, slow cars, uh, all, all needing to do different, achieve different things, right? So I, I'm trying to work out how do you as an industry work out the demand by volume? Doesn't matter about the percentage of, of uh, cobalt yeah. in a battery if the batteries are getting bigger, because you know that number may stay ten kilos. You know, sure. right? Even if they've been thrifted out. So, as a volume sense, I how much mm-hmm. how much can we get out of the ground? How much we're going to need to get out of the ground to feed into this system? How do you guys get that data? Because it's always been a very opaque market. So, how do you work it out? Sure. So. Um Firstly, there are there are elements of, of the cobalt demand uh, market, excuse me, which are substitutable to some degree. So if you go at the very low economic value end, um, cobalt is a hard-facing tool in machining. Um, some of the cobalt dyes, substitution of cobalt, some of the magnetic uh, properties in industrial uses, um, all of which have a price and an economic substitution because there is a, a, a B and C metal that will effectively do a similar or, or, or as good a job. Batteries, um, different different case. And the way the market, the, the, the uh, we internally have worked it, and some of the leading consultants work it, is you look at the battery market and you stratify it. So for example, at the low end on the EV side, and I'll just focus on EVs, hybrids. Does it really matter if your 10 kilogram hybrid battery is 15? Not really. Um, it's there to give you a, you know, pick a number, 15, 20K boost. In a plug-in, maybe it gives you a 50 to 100K boost, but it's not critical. You go to fully battery electric, that becomes critical. And then so then, you are, then, then you've got to ask yourself, what's the energy density that you need? Because ultimately, if you buy a cheaper battery, it's heavier as well, and therefore it's a self-defeating. So um, analysts will look at the segment of EVs, typically mass market passenger, which is the biggest and healthiest segment, but there are commercial, there are, uh, you know, in in, um, in India, there's the three-wheel market, then there's cycles, et cetera. And what you then look at is what is the key, key elements you need from that battery? Typically breaks down to energy density, which we've talked about, power density, the ability to charge and discharge very quickly. Is that important to you? Overall temperature and, and other stability, criterion and basically then an analyst will say well that core represents the target market for for cobalt and the mass market passenger vehicle globally is generally an entrenched cobalt market then next question to your point what's the penetration per unit how many and then the unit growth rate now as the penetration goes down in other words it's thrifted out the unit growth rate is is operating at an order of magnitude higher so the overall pool uh, demand pull of cobalt is, is very, very significant against what is still a very small production base globally. So, again, it comes back to that question, how does the market determine demand? Because it's it's evolved, It's a fairly nascent. I know we've, we've talked about electric cars for a few years, but there have been hybrid versions and small batteries at that, and it's you know 30-mile distances. It, it, it was nothing meaningful. It was just a marketing exercise. But now moving to full electric vehicles of whatever description, size, et cetera, it's, it's getting serious. But I, I'm intrigued as to how you work out um, the growth demand for the marketplace. You know, battery manufacturers are having to do, pl- you've said, you've got to plan 10 years out, right? And it's going to take a long time. There's not that many cobalt producers in the world, right? You've got the DRC with its PR issues, we'll call it that. 
and people still need cobalt, it's clear. So where's it all going to come from and what's that going to do to pricing? Yeah, so you, you've made a good point. 10, 10 15 years ago, um, or 15 years ago, an electric vehicle was a golf cart. And that's where credit should be given to the likes of Tesla. They've taken that and made it a mass stream vehicle and created a quality of product that people will buy. And, and what's really interesting about that particular manufacturer is they didn't have an incumbent internal combustion brand. The, the likes of Toyota, BMW, VW, they've all got, they can provide to customers a like-for-like like i3 model, which is electric, i3 model, which is petrol. People trust the badge, trust the name. The same service centre um, uh, provides that after sales for both. And they've got the confidence to make that switch somewhat seamlessly. So today, we're seeing quality on a like-for-like like basis. More important, sorry, as importantly, cost of ownership um, is at that point now. Um the, the actual cost of life cycle ownership, all the, all the downstream costs, it's way cheaper for an EV. But today what we're seeing is a trigger that's provided by subsidies. And last time I was on, I talked about some of the EU subsidies of, for example, Germany, 7,000 euros for a sticker um, of up to 40,000. Now, automatically, that means the driveway price is cheaper than the ICE. So you've got the same badge, same quality, um, cheaper sticker price, way cheaper longer-term prices. You've got governments who have put in the infrastructure, so range anxiety is no longer a thing. So now it just becomes simple economic choice. The question of predicting the market today is easier because a few years ago when you didn't have economic parity, when you still had quality issues, certainly four or five years ago, it was really a question of when would the industry catch up so that it provided that traction point for customers to make a decision. That points today. But so what we're seeing now is how quickly can we substitute? And what I can tell you is in a recent conversation with a, a top tier maker, they found themselves now to be net short 22, 23 cobalt, physical cobalt, because of these subsidies coming through. Now, the reason I say that is that their internal um, uh, procurement forecast is for a five to six times uplift in 2022-23 sales. That's based on their EV relationships relative to what it was in 2020. If I look at our internal assumptions and some of the more consensual assumptions out there, that's at best two and a half to three. So they're already telling me in the next two years, this whole market's come upgrade with the confidence that only someone who has visibility of the EV deployment that they have can give you. So, I mean, the, the, the cobalt futures market, because we, we, again, we've talked in the past about different pricing in the market, right? There's the price people see, and then there's a, there's a whole kind of sub-market uh, going on, and there's the trace, you know, tracking of where, where product is and where it's from and all of that kind of good stuff. It's always been very confusing. Because yes. I remember you saying that to me. It's like, oh, the, the price that you, you think it is, it's, it's not that price. So with the futures market going forward, are things going to have to tighten up using technology? Um, is it going to be coming from uh, regulators? Is it going to be coming from OEMs? Or is it, is, are the, the companies themselves going to have to um, show a little bit more initiative? I mean, how do we try well, let me this? Give, let me take a step back um, and just recast our view on, on what pricing is important, which isn't. And then we'll talk about what we're seeing in some of the futures uh, markets, because there's some fascinating trends. Um, 
it's it's our view that there's a bullish cobalt mosaic unfolding, and what the last two months has been about is putting several of those pieces in place. And, and let me explain. Um, firstly, don't look at the LME price. Why? The LME's 500 odd global um, franchise warehouses, of which contain 300 tonne of metal currently, and is lucky to trade 20 or 30 tonne per, per month. Why is it there? It's there is uh, by equity funds and others who hold it, they want to trade it on a cash and carry arbitrage. So in a year's time, they'll sell it, they'll make a profit, it's great. It's not commercial product. It's not commercial product. The Metals Bulletin. So explain what you mean, though. explain what you mean. It's not commercial product. It's, 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 it's just got some kind of utility, but it's not being used? Or is it just moving from it's warehouse like to warehouse? Bar. Yeah. It's like a gold bar. You, you can mark to market it every day based on its its purity and its um and its and its volume. But effectively you're gonna sit on it. It's just it, mobile inventory. It's just mobile inventory, which doesn't really and get then used. I'll sell it when I'm when it's hit my target price, I'll sell it. Great. Okay, understood. It's 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 not gonna find its way into the market. And at three hundred tons, it's 0.2% of the global market. So it ain't gonna make an effect anyway. Um, so if you look at the, the commercial counters, MB, which today trades as fast market, is the globally accepted commercial benchmark for, for metal. Today, we're seeing metal prices in Asia, briquette prices at $24 a pound. Um, in, in Europe, in Rotterdam, the, uh, the import price there is the default European price, $23 a pound US. And in Asia, the cobalt sulfate price, cobalt sulfate is the battery ingredient that cobalt blue will be making, is at 25 a pound. So a couple of things. Firstly, the sulfate's at a premium. That tells you what's pulling the market along. Um, and secondly, all those prices are largely double what they were last April because small market, large pull-through effect. And our thesis, and, and, and this is where you come back to the non-substitutability of cobalt in the EV battery, and what we're physically seeing from our commercial uh, partners, our thesis is we've just started that tightening process. Um, so MB is the price um, you should be looking at. There are other consultants who will, who will have their own pricing, but they're not commercial numbers, but they're generally good proxies for, for those commercial numbers. So that's effectively the pricing side. Interestingly enough, there is no um, volume to the cobalt futures market. So there are a number of brokers who broker market. They're typically settled through CME out of, um, out of the US. And what we're seeing in the last 12 months is rather than traditional incumbents into that, which are trading houses and other financial um, incumbents, we've started to see EV OEMs enter the market and go long futures on a 23-24 basis. Now, bear in mind, these are dollar settled contracts. They're not, they're not um, physical. So what they're doing effectively is some of these um, EV makers are short physical cobalt because of those long dated um, uh, deals that we announced earlier with respect to Glencore and, and some of those players. But they're coming into the futures market to hedge themselves by being long the dollar settled contract. So there's a really interesting, almost like an iceberg phenomenon here. We're not seeing what's happening under, under the hood, but we are seeing the tip by these guys entering into the futures market and thereby exposing these company-to-company long-dated contracts. And that's a phenomenon we've only just started seeing in the last six or so months, that um, OEM, named OEMs are coming into the market and effectively hedging their net short uh, metal positions. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean... 
I mean, the OEMs, are, you forget how smart they are. I remember back in the, here we go, show my age. Late 90s, early 2000s, I think Porsche were making more money from their FX exchanges than they were with their cars, which is quite, quite remarkable. So, but by doing that, they're protecting themselves, clearly. Um, yep. What's that going to do to the market again in terms of it just being transparent and open? I predict the predictability. Look, I, I'll answer your question as slightly askew. I'd say that all of these, all of these developments are, are really good for the cobalt market. So as I mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a mosaic. Um, by putting in a futures market, uh, and at the moment, and I'm just looking at these numbers from these long-term deals, under the iceberg, we're seeing probably 50% of one year's metal being committed forward on a five or six year basis. Um, metals like nickel, copper, they're typically five, 10 or more times the vol is the forward volume relative to the annual volume. So we're at 0.5. So we're a long way short of a mature market if you wanted to, to reference a base metal, but I think it's a necessary step to that evolution. So those who want to take either speculative or hedging positions will come in naturally to these futures markets. And initially, the forced participation of these guys who are net short physical will give that a good catalyst. So I think it's a good evolution. And I think it's a, it's a necessary step for, for Cobalt's maturity going forward. Okay, look, you're an ex-banker. You know this market really, really well from a market's perspective. And you've given us your view, the optics in, in the market. What would you do, though, as a banker? Um, you mean how would I play it if I was yeah, a, a, a investor? Um, well, uh, you, you, the simplest way to play it is is the cash settlement market because you don't have any of the inefficiencies with physical. Physical's hard. It's and that's partly the reason why there's such little of it on the LME anyway. Um, so you would go in and you know because the market's evolving, you could almost cut your own contract to spec. You might pay away a fee on that, but you know your duration. The, the purity that you want, um, you would you'd actually cut your own contract and go physically long it. Now, you might be able to get a margin on that if you're really bullish. Um, yeah, that, that's how I'd be thinking about it. You, you're in a position where you don't necessarily have to take a vanilla contract because the market is so immature. Right. Okay. And what would you do if you were a retail investor, knowing all of that? Um, unless you have that financial capability and the risk management and the significant risk management processes that go with that, then you're going to need to have a leverage play on cobalt. Now, at a, at a, a mining level, there's two companies in the world that will give you primary cobalt exposure. One is the Kingdom of Morocco, and that's not investable. And the other is Cobalt Blue out of, um, out of Australia. So um, investment into us will give you approximately 80% of the, of the revenue leverage into, into cobalt. Investment into us will give you a product that feeds directly into the battery industry. In other words, it's an integrated mine refinery. And it's an investment that will back a 20 plus year operating life at one of the lowest cash costs in the world produced by plant, which is about a third of the capital intensity of any neighboring plant because it's a fairly unique process and because we're hunting the one metal, we're not a polymetallic. So all of those factors, if you're a retail investor um, and you're limited in your optionality, you would invest in Cobalt Blue. Okay. You would say that. Well, I hope you'd I say would. that. <laughs> um, let me come back to something I touched upon. Um, 
which was around P, a PR, a PR problem that DRC has. Okay, do you think we're ever? I mean, obviously, you you can definitely argue the case. Your, your company, Cobalt Blue, can argue the case uh, positively. But do you think we can ever reach a, a a point where there's ethical sourcing of cobalt, or is it just an aspiration, a dream that will never quite happen? Because the reality is, the DRC is where the cobalt is, and at the end of the day, we need it. Um, I think we're seeing two steps forward, one step back as a, as a, as a phenomenon at the moment. So um, we have recently seen a nationalisation of artisanal production from Jekka Mines, out of, uh, which is a state um, miner in, in, in the DRC, effectively means that the state will now process all the cobalt and then sell it and grab a margin on that cobalt. Up until that point, a lot of the artisanal um, um, product was was uh, effectively handled by cooperatives, and those cooperatives then sold on to other marketing agents, and they typically found their way into into the Chinese refining mix, and that's where a lot of the angst came with in terms of ethical sourcing. So I think it's um, uh, time will tell, but I don't think it's a very good sign at all that the states monopolise that, and I think that's ultimately just going to wash product through. On the positive side. Uh, the Fair Cobalt Alliance and some of the sustainable um, NGOs there are looking to create um, sustainable practices. And one thing I look, I should say, and, and this is people's livelihoods, whether you agree with artisanal product or not, this is um, these are incomes that put food on the table for villagers in the DRC and they deserve a living. So we need to support them as an industry, but lift them out of that uh, that vicious cycle of sending kids, uh, um, you know, lack of training, lack of protective equipment, poor mining practices, all of those have to be addressed. And I'm fully supportive of, of remedying that. But unfortunately, the NGOs that are involved, more recently, a few of the major mining companies are coming in, but we need to see hard and fast evidence of how that'll, how, how that'll um, transpire going forward. Yeah, I think, I think. Uh, so the answer to your question is I, 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 the time will tell. There's some positive news, but it's it's not coming in a hurry. Right. Okay. So, well, to that point, then, what does 2021 look like for the cobalt market and for the equity players in the cobalt market? Yeah. So, look, um, I'm surprised at the lag um, that I'm seeing among some of the peers in the market. They really haven't put their foot back on the development side. So during COVID and, and in, prior to that in 2019 with the rollover in the cobalt price, uh, Cobalt Blue, Blue was one of maybe two companies globally that kept at it. So we kept going and now we're at a point where we're looking to harvest and effectively bring our project in as the price cycle uh, tightens. So I'm surprised at lack of response in the developers, in the ASX and Canadian listed developers, um, but that will start to come come into being. Um, look, I, I think all I can really tell you is that we're, we're focused on getting our project right. And in order to get it right, we're, set, we're sending out um, samples of two, two grades of cobalt product. One's a very high purity grade. And if we get that right, and we should know in the next two quarters, three quarters, then we should fast, we'll fast track ourselves into effectively into construction and development. And that fast tracking is all about securing, securing the financing that comes with those partners. Okay. Well, you, you must come back on and talk to us about Cobalt Blue and what you're up to, because I think you're 
you know, quite, quite, there's a there's a sharp, pointy moment here for you this year. You've got, you know, you're going to need a bit of uh, capital. You'll get some feedback from um, some of some of these uh, battery companies as to what they what, how they want to move forward. So I'd be really appreciative if you do come on and talk to us about them. But as for today, you've answered the question for me, which is. Why is cobalt still relevant in terms of the EV thematic, in terms of battery, lithium-ion batteries moving forward? Cobalt is still a significant, meaningful player going forward, and people should be looking at it as part of their investment portfolio. Absolutely. And particularly since people tend to focus on the demand side of lithium, nickel, et cetera, look at the supply base of cobalt. It simply isn't robust enough, nor is the supply chain robust enough to supply uh, this scale of offtake that's required. It's, it's, we are going to hit, in 2021, we'll be largely in balance with some ex- excess surface stocks. By 22, 23, there'll be an in- inflection point. Um, and there's not a lot that the EV market can do about it. There's minor amounts of thrifting on the, non-EV, sorry, on the non-battery side, but there's not a lot the EV market can do about it. Joe, that's a brilliant rundown. Appreciate your time today, as always, giving us that insight, market insight. Uh, we'll stay in touch and we'll speak to you soon and we'll reach out with regards to uh, Cobalt Blue. Really excited about what you're doing there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.